All right, guys, well, welcome back. It's such a joy uh, to be meeting together as a little flock, the people of God. Uh, that's what church is, is God's blood-bought people coming together to now turn the praise back onto Him and make it all about Him. Um, and it's such a joy to do that here in Parramatta where we love our church back in Morunga, but we're glad that we're, God's knitting us together into this new family. And we're also glad that new people are joining in. And in fact, we actually had a new human being join our church um, this week, which was, um, I don't even know if they want me to say it. Maybe you can tell me the cars. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. So John, um, John and Claire, if you don't know, Claire was very pregnant and they had their baby this week, little... Um, Amelie Harper, I believe. Is that right? Amelie Harper Carr. So very, very cool. They're home now. I don't know how they're doing. I haven't checked in with him since they got home. Um, but, you know, first time baby, I'm sure everything's going great. <laughs> um, but it's so nice. Uh, it's such a special time. I remember it all too well. That was the scariest day of my life, bringing Evie home. And it was like a 40-degree day in the middle of January, and all the power was off in our apartment block. So there was no fans, no lights, no aircon, and we were like, who let us out of the hospital? Like, because we were real young as well. Um, and so anyway, God bless John. Um, and actually, let's pray for them now as a family. Let, join in prayer. Uh, Lord, I pray and ask that you would bless John and Claire as new parents. Uh, Lord, would you give them that immeasurable amount of grace that they need to serve you, to love you first and foremost, to love and serve one another, and love and serve their new daughter. And Lord, we pray for little Amelie, and we ask that in Jesus' name, you would purchase her and save her and bring her home um, into glory with you one day. Uh, Lord, we ask that in this season, you would help them to be slow to speak, slow to become angry, quick to listen. Uh, they'd be merciful to one another, tender-hearted, compassionate. May this be a sweet season for them. And we ask that you would bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, and as a church, we're going to uh, put together a bit of a meal roster for them to help them through this time. Because that's what happened to me when we first joined the church. People that we didn't know rocked up with meals for about three weeks or something, once every three nights, and, and gave us food. And we didn't know them. And it was, it was a great way of just feeling like, wow, this is a church family. So that's something we're going to be doing to bless them and care for them. So stay tuned. I think Alana's organizing that. So she'll send, if she hasn't already sent it out, she will send it out. We are beginning our series this morning in Ephesians. Uh, I'm so excited for this because we've, I've been planning, thinking about this for such a long time, and now finally we are here uh, going through a book of the Bible. Uh, that's our staple course of how we do preaching. Uh, the past four weeks we did topical messages based on a text but on a topic. Now we're just going to be going Ephesians, and then the next verse, and then the next verse, bit by bit, you know, chunk by chunk. So it's going to be great. There's little journals at the back, if you want to buy one, they're $5, and it's the whole book of Ephesians, just, here we go, in a little journal. Um, so you can write in it, and it's pretty, and or it's manly, the black one. So whichever one you want, you can go with, uh, but you can use that to kind of help you read through the book. Ephesians actually only takes about 20 minutes to read through in one sitting, out loud, so even faster if you read in your head. Um, uh, and you can actually read it through multiple times and really get a feel for it. So if you want a journal, you can go do that now if you need one right now. Um, otherwise, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles up the back there. And if you need one, it's page 567. And let's read from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 2. So you can open up your little journal. Here we go, Max, ma mass journal buying time. 
And, uh, oh, do we have the little picture? Can we go back? How nice is that? Leanne made that. Um, it's so nice. And it's a, it's a, it's a great slogan of um, what Ephesians is in a kind of sentence. You could kind of say that it's plan- what's planned in eternity is displayed in community. Um, and it, we're going to unpack the message a bit today, and this is going to be a bit of a different message because we're going to try and outline the whole book of Ephesians in one go and kind of orient ourselves with it. Uh, and so if you've never kind of just preached, been in a church that's preached through the whole book of a Bible or gained a picture, you're going to see something awesome where God didn't just write down like a hundred and thousand little tidbit verses that kind of you can pull out and make a good message from. He wrote letters that all joined together, and this book is a really good example of that. So let's turn, we're just going to read verses 1 to 2, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read it again, so short we can do it twice. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Would you please bless the preaching of your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's possible that you can go through your entire life of church not really knowing why church exists, why we gather, what we're actually doing every Sunday morning. Um, You can come along and still be blessed. You can come along and be saved. You can come along and win eternal salvation by coming to church, but still not even really understand Why do it in the first place? Is it just something that's practical or pragmatic? It makes sense. We need to gather. Or is it just uh, something that feels good? We do it because it's experiential. Or is there a bigger purpose behind church? See, I grew up in a really great church down south. And we had an awesome youth group. We had an awesome church. Preached the gospel. We loved the Savior. We tried to live it out, live righteous and holy lives. But I've never really stopped and thought, but why church? Why this gathering? What, what's the point of this thing? Until one day I was at someone else's church up the coast at Central Coast EV and one of my old youth pastors was preaching on Ephesians chapter 3 and he spoke on the purpose of the church. Um, and Ephesians chapter 3 talks about how the church is here to display to the cosmic realities of what God can do. And I was blown away by that moment because I'd never considered that church had a purpose other than to maybe preach the gospel for individual salvation. But what we're going to see in this book of Ephesians is that there's a whole lot more going on in our weekly gathering and our little flock and indeed the whole universal church. The church is not an add-on to God's plan. The church is not an invention by the early apostles who thought it's going to be best if we gather together. The church is God's plan. It's not the plan B, it is the plan. That's what God is doing in the world, is building and establishing and strengthening and multiplying churches for His glory. And the book of Ephesians is incredible because what it does is Paul kind of steps back and delivers almost like a beautiful doctrine 
of the Christian life and the Christian church in this succinct six-chapter book. You see, Paul isn't writing to the Ephesians with a particular need he needs to address. You know, in Corinth, there's crazy spiritual gifts going on. In other Galatians, they've abandoned the gospel. There's lots of different needs. But in Ephesians, he's sort of delivering a general address to lift their eyes from their earthly gaze into the heavenly realms. So we're going to see in this book that kind of the the heavenly and the, the temporal, the earth, meets together in the church where the dwelling place of God exists. Now, there's a lot of big realities that go on in Ephesians, eternal realities that have eternal consequences. So it's going to be really fun to study it, and it's going to blow our minds as we go through. Now, John Stott has a great quote um, in his commentary on the Ephesians about why church matters and how we've gone wrong. John Stott says it like this, One of our chief evangelical blind spots has been to overlook the central importance of the church. We tend to proclaim individual salvation without moving on to the saved community. We emphasize that Christ died for us to redeem us from all iniquity rather than to purify for himself a people of his own. We think of ourselves more as Christians than as churchmen. And our message is more good news of a new life than of a new society. Nobody can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians with a privatized gospel. For Ephesians is the gospel of the church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create through Jesus Christ a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. For God's new society is characterized by life in place of death, by unity and reconciliation in place of division and alienation, by the wholesome standards of righteousness in place of the corruption of wickedness, by love and peace in place of hatred and strife, and by unremitting conflict with evil in a place of flabby compromise with it. This vision of a renewed community has stirred me deeply, Stott says. At the same time, the realities of a loveless and sorry, of lovelessness and sin in so many contemporary churches are enough to make one weak, for they dishonor Christ, contradict the nature of the church, and deprive the Christian witness of integrity. Yet increasing numbers of church members are seeking the church's radical renewal. This is like 30 years ago, 40 years ago. For the sake of the glory of God and the evangelization of the world, nothing is more important than that the church should be and should be seen to be God's new society, or you could say community. Towards the fulfillment of this vision, Ephesians gives us a strong and steady stimulus. See, what Stott, this great Anglican brother from a previous generation, is telling us is that in our individualized world, we've co-opted that into our gospel too. The gospel becomes about me and Jesus, not we and Jesus. And so we read through even letters like Ephesians, and we miss the fact that it was written to a real people, to a community whom God expected them to live out the realities together. 
that all the yous in Ephesians are actually yours or yous if you're from the West. Uh, and so when we read the book of Ephesians, what God is going to do with us is he's going to transform us into a community, even more so. Uh, because this message stands to tell us of God's cosmic plan for this little tiny gathering in Parramatta or North Parramatta. Uh, and so this morning what I want to do is I want to unpack um, the first two verses uh, and give sort of an overview for what the book is about. But if there's one way to, to kind of describe what we're doing in this whole book, it's this. Ephesians, planned in eternity, displayed in community to the praise of His glorious grace. Three points to go through today. An unlikely author unlikely recipients, and an unlikely message. Point number one, an unlikely author. Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's easy to skip over the first two verses in any letter of Paul's letters because we think, oh, it's just a letter, you know. It's just like, you know, when you get an email to from and to and subject, skip, get to the body of the email. But Paul isn't wasting words here. Um, every single part of this letter is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is important and profitable for us. And so we're going to take a little bit of time just to unpack each of these little things and see what God has to say. And sometimes it's by the unpacking of the insignificant parts that we actually find incredibly significant things. So Paul here is addressing himself to the Ephesian church. He says, hey, I'm Paul, and I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's coming in with the big gun straight away. Uh, that title there can mean various things in the New Testament, uh, but here I think Paul is using that term to say, I'm one of the set-apart, authoritative, sent ones of Jesus. I come with all the authority of Jesus Christ. In fact, he has sent me. Uh, and he backs it up by saying, it's not just by my own will. He says, a Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Um, if you know a bit about Paul's life, being an apostle of Christ Jesus was not part of Paul's plan for his life. Paul grew up as a very strict Jew under the head teacher Gamaliel. He was incredibly well taught and incredibly zealous for the um, Judaistic practices. He was a high, strict Pharisee. So much so that when he heard of this message of Jesus Christ and this preaching of the gospel, he went out and tried to stop it. Um, he was part of the crew that was really trying to kill Christianity, quite literally. We see um, early on in the story of the church that the Apostle Paul is the one who kind of gathers and rallies against this young man, Stephen, who's preaching the gospel. And people even lay their cloaks on Paul and at his feet as they pick up stones to kill Stephen, who's preaching the gospel. So that was Paul's will. Paul's will, I want to take down the church. And he goes and ravages the church in Jerusalem. Then he's on a path to Damascus and he wants to ravage the church in Damascus. His aim is to kill all these terrorists, these false prophets, these false teachers, these Christians. And then Jesus turns up, as we know the story. In blinding light on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to Paul um, who was going by his Jewish name then, and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's a very interesting phrase that Jesus says to Saul there. Because Saul isn't persecuting Jesus, he's persecuting the church. But to persecute the church 
is to persecute Jesus because Jesus identifies himself intrinsically with his people. So as Saul is going about putting to death the church, he's trying to put to death Jesus Christ himself. And the, Jesus comes to him and radically changes his life. The resurrected Jesus who died you know, however many months beforehand is now risen and appearing to Paul. And Paul, or Saul at this point, is flabbergasted. He has nothing to say. Eventually, the Lord redeems his heart, sends his Holy Spirit into him. Literal scales fall from his eyes, and he becomes a sent one of Jesus Christ. Jesus had a plan for Paul that wasn't part of his mission and plan. And then Jesus sends Paul throughout all the known world to preach and teach the gospel wherever he went. And that's what Paul did from that point. He was sent by Jesus in that moment, and he went up and down the coastline, across the seas, on boats, in cities, stoned, beaten, flogged, hated, loved, all the emotions in between. And one of those cities he got to was Ephesus. But it's worth noting that um, this little phrase, by the will of God, because it's quite an um, important phrase in this book to the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. One of the things that crops up many times is this all-encompassing plan of God. We often think about our own plans, what we're trying to get done in life, our own will, what we're hoping to achieve, and we hope that God fulfills with our plans. Uh, but what we're going to see in this is that God actually is the author of the universe, and He has a plan for everything. And like Paul, He can totally turn your life around and get done what He wants to get done. And that's what's happening in this letter to the Ephesians. Paul is going to tell us part of the will of God, um, and it's going to astound us. So there we go. We've got the unlikely author, point one, Paul. Now, point number two, the unlikely recipients. So look at verse B, 1b there. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Oops. There we go. So we have this uh, body of Christians in Ephesus. But how do we get there? How did this letter kind of come about because Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. Jesus died in Jerusalem. There's about a thousand K walk between the two places. So how did there come to be saints in Ephesus? Um, so to get there, I want to kind of tell us a little bit of the story from the book of Acts as to how the gospel got to Ephesus. Uh, and so you've got um, the real story kind of begins in Acts chapter 19. Um, Ephesus is, one, is probably the fourth or fifth largest city in all the Roman Empire at this point. So it's like a New York, it's like a London, it, it's, a, it's a big city. And in that city, there's about 250,000 people, which is a huge number of people in ancient times. Uh, the, the cult of the Roman Emperor was there as well, so they worshipped the Roman Emperor. It was a significant city. And also the Temple of Artemis, which is uh, in, in, in the Greek language um, is Artemis in... Roman, it's Diana. Latin, it's Diana. Anyway, uh, and they have, that's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, was in Ephesus at that time. So it's a significant city. It's, it's kind of close to the port, of the, um, and there's a canal that runs into it. So there's lots of money, trade, finance, lots of different people coming through. And so how did the gospel get there? 
Well, Paul visited for just a very brief amount of time and went to the synagogues and then chuffed off and went back home for a period of time. And then later, as he was going on his third missionary journey in about 52 AD, he comes from the region of Phrygia, which, you know, is further west of Turkey, and comes down east into Ephesus. And this is what happens in chapter 19, verse 1 of the book of Acts. So up until this point, there's Jews in the city. There's some people have started to hear the gospel of Jesus, but not really because we're going to see a guy called Apollos had been preaching to them, but Apollos didn't have the full story yet. So verse, chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, so Apollos was in Ephesus, he went to Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> all right, let's go. What, what I got to teach you now? And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And really, this is the beginning of the church in Ephesus. Somehow they had missed the deal about Jesus being Lord and Savior and God and King. And so they had been believing in repentance through John, John the Baptist's message. So they were cleaning themselves up before God, but they hadn't yet received Christ as their Lord and Savior, nor had they received the Spirit. So Paul comes and it's, it's this weird moment where he's like, okay, well, let's get you baptized and believe in Jesus. They become Christians in that moment fully and properly they receive the Spirit, and then to evidence that this new thing has happened, I believe the Spirit gives them the gift of tongues and they begin to prophesy. So this external manifestation of the Holy Spirit is given to these believers to demonstrate they really are now believers in Christ. It's a, it's a salvation historical moment, just like in Pentecost, not to be repeated. So if you became a Christian and didn't extemporaneously start speaking in tongues and prophesying, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Um, it doesn't mean it has to happen every time, but I think this is a unique moment because they'd sort of missed the whole Pentecost moment being off in Ephesus and hadn't heard of it yet. And so they become Christians, and really, you've got 12 men. That's kind of funny that there's 12 there. I don't know if there's any significance in that, but the church is born in that time. And so what happens next? Well, verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue. So that's the Jewish place where they would meet every Saturday on the Shabbat to teach, to worship, to come together. And spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It's an incredible scene. Paul is so bold. He, he goes into the synagogue and starts preaching Jesus from the Old Testament to prove to them he really is the Christ. And for a couple of months, they put up with it, and then eventually some of the big dogs in the synagogue go, no, nah, we're over this. Get out. And so Paul leaves, takes the church with him, 
But then he goes to the Hall of Tyrannus, which was a public lecture hall. It'd be like going down to, you know, your local community center um, and teaching in the community college. And he gets up and starts preaching Jesus there. And he gets two years of that public teaching. Uh, And in that time, as he's preaching, obviously, people are being saved, people are hearing the gospel, and then spreading it. So much so that we hear that the gospel went out through all of Asia. That's not like China, Asia. That's, you know, old old ancient Asia, which was in like Turkey and the region around there. And so the gospel spreads throughout all the land. It's one of Paul's most fruitful times of ministry. And it's all just in like one sentence there. But imagine that, like imagine if, you know, our, okay, like there's slightly more than 12 people here, but imagine we start preaching and then suddenly in two years time they say, and every single person in Western Sydney heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moving on. It's like, but that's an incredible thing. So God was meeting powerfully with Paul Um, But it wasn't all easy. Um, The city of Ephesus was full of pagan worship. It was full of religious, Judaistic worship. And it was full of demonic spiritual worship as well, which is what happens in the next little section. So look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That's a, <laughs> is everyone reading that with me? <laughs> I'm thinking, like, I should have brought a hanky, because we, maybe we could try that out. But, that, I mean, that's an incredible thing to happen, that such was the manifestation of God's Spirit upon Paul, and it pleased the Lord to use him in such a way that pieces of clothing could be kind of draped on people, and spirits would come out of them. And if you're new to Christianity this morning, okay, this is weird, and we're not going to apologize for it. It is weird, um, but this is what happens. This is really what happened. Verse 13, it gets weirder. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, um, so that was, they were traveling exorcists. That was their job. They made their living by going from town to town, casting demons out of people somehow. They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they've picked up, like, the name of Jesus has got some power. So they're going around and starting to, they're finding all the demon-possessed people, and they're starting to speak the name of Jesus over them. But then, verse 15, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So that's kind of exorcism gone wrong. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So these aren't just crazy miracles happening because it's like a sideshow, you know, down on James Roos Drive, there's Circus Rio going at the moment. That's not what's happening. The reason why the Lord permitted this to happen was to magnify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not random, it's not a trick, it's there to lift up Jesus so that the people in Ephesus who've never heard of this Jesus character go, there is incredible power in the name of Jesus. Verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
or I, I looked it up in modern terms, about six to eight million Australian dollars. Yeah, if you take a, a piece of silver was like a day's labor uh, wages, and so if you put that in our modern money, that's how much it was worth. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Amazing, the power of the gospel comes to a city, and people who are lost in sin, lost in Jewish religion that had forgotten about the Messiah, lost in spiritual acts of trying to have control over their life by joining with the forces of evil and darkness, joining into magic and witchcraft, trying to get power, trying to get ahead. The name of Jesus is proclaimed and radical things happen. Demons are cast out, sick people are healed, and even more powerful than that, sinful hearts are turned and they start worshipping the Lord. So much so that they, people would take their most treasured and valuable belongings and burn them in the sight of all. It's a radical picture of conversion. You know, this would be the front page of every Christian newspaper. <laughs> you know, crazy revival breaks out in Ephesus. And that's what Paul experienced in this city. Amidst conflict, amidst trouble, great power through the Word of God. And notice too, right at the end there, verse 20, what continued to prevail mightily? The Word of the Lord. You see, as Luke writes this book of Acts, he's trying to show us that the power is not Paul. It's not this charismatic, you know, gifted individual Paul. It's the Word of the Lord, and it's the name of Jesus that has the power. Uh, and that was you know, what was going on in Ephesus, and that's true here in this church. We may not see some of the same crazy miracles happen, but we can have every confidence that through the preaching of the Word, through the preaching of the message of Jesus Christ, lives will be changed just as radically. Because the change of any heart from death to life is a radical, radical change. But then the struggle continues. Uh, I'm not going to read this next section, but basically what happens is so many people become Christians that some of the, the guys who make idols, so Demetrius, the silversmith, he starts to go, wait, wait a second, our numbers are down. Why aren't we producing as many idols of Artemis? And they're like, oh, it's because everyone's becoming Christians. They're getting rid of their idols. So the, the effect of the gospel in Ephesus is that commerce went down. <laughs> the economy t started to plunge because, you know, everyone stopped their Netflix subscription or stopped, you know, buying, going to the bottle shops or whatever. And they're just, you know, they're worshiping the Lord now. And so he's like, no, we've got we to gotta do something about this. He gathers the other silversmiths and says, we've got to stop this. And basically they, they start a riot. Um, and so they go and they start to stir up the people and tell them that Paul has come in to destroy Artemis, their prized and sacred God. You know, the God that brought so much commerce into their area and so much meaning and significance to their lives. And so the crowds start to go bonkers and crazy and thousands of them rush together and they start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians and there's this frenzy now, Paul wasn't there at the time, but two of his companions get swept up into this. They grab two of them, put them in the theater, which can hold about 20,000 people. I should have got a photo up for you. It's a massive. It's still there today. You can look it up later. 20,000 people could be there, all yelling and screaming, potentially be 
beating these two um, servants of the Apostle Paul. And then they cry and chant for two hours, it says, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So it's like a soccer game gone wild. It's like the Wanderers, you know, but on acid. And so they just go and go and go. And they're so, you know, inflamed and incensed um, that it takes one of their town clerks to settle everything down. Uh, And eventually he disperses the crowd And during that time, though, it's funny, you read it, you can read it later, Paul is like, let me in there, I want to get in there, and all the other disciples are like, no, 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 Paul, just stay here, you're going to get killed, we need you for further work. And eventually, after this, there's too much hostility, and Paul decides now's the time to leave. So he leaves Ephesus, and that's the end, he never comes back. Um, And so the gospel comes in this mighty way. About five years later, Paul visits the Ephesian elders um, in Miletus, um, a boat strip away, and instructs them and commands them to watch out for false teachers and prophets and things like that. And then in AD 62, about 10 years from when he first came, um, he writes the letter to the Ephesians. So there's, you know, there's kind of a little bit of a history and a background to the church there. Um, Paul stayed there for three years. It's one of the longest times he spent anywhere at one time. And so this, this area was greatly affected by the gospel. And then we come to that verse again. Let's look at it. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. To the saints. Based on their history, based on all the sin that they had committed, all the idolatry and, you know, pagan worship and false religion hatred, hostility, enmity, because of the gospel, because that Jesus has died in their place for their sin, he can now look at the Ephesians and say, you are saints. You are chosen ones, set apart by God. He uses the very language of the Old Testament, the holy ones. Israel were the saints in the Old Testament. Now he's saying to these pagan, former pagan worshippers, you are saints. We don't become saints by doing lots of good deeds. We don't become saints by performing a miracle. We don't become saints by having a long history of getting it right. By believing in Jesus Christ, we are automatically saints. And Paul brings it up here because one of the big themes throughout the book of Ephesians is this identity. Who am I? One of the questions many people are asking in our society, who am I? Trying to wrestle it out, figure it out. Which gender am I? Which sexuality am I? What job am I? What what worth and value do I have? Well, Paul and God is speaking to us this morning and saying, you are saints. Done. That's who you are. You're a saint, holy, beloved, set apart, and chosen by God. And no one can take that away from you. And he continues and he says, To the saints, sorry, yeah, here we go. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. You see, to be faithful to Christ Jesus in Ephesus was no small task. Very difficult task, given the hostility you see there. But he's writing to the church 10 years on from when he first began, and he's saying, you saints, you are still following him. Keep going. That's who I'm writing to, to you who have not given up despite the hostility. 
And notice that there's these two uses of the word in. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul's picking up here the two themes of the Christian life. We are in Christ through union with Him, through faith in Him. We are in Him. We truly exist and are in union with Christ. Yet, we are still in Parramatta, in wherever we live. We live in this now-not-yet reality. And same for these Ephesian Christians. They live in Ephesus and are in Christ Jesus. They have to figure out what it means to look like as a saint in this earthly city. And in fact, that's sort of in one way how you could kind of summarize the structure of this letter. See, verse, chapters 1 to 3 talks about what God has done and who they are. They are in Christ. And chapters 4 to 6 then talked about the practicalities of how you're meant to live in Ephesus. So in Christ, in Ephesus. And that's the same for you and I this morning. We are in Christ and in Parramatta. We are in the world, yet not of the world. And we have to figure out what it looks like to be faithful in that realm. So, Paul, an apostle, that's the unlikely author. He would have never chosen himself this path, but by the will of God, he chose it for him. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, these are unlikely recipients because of their past, because of their sin, because of what they've done against God, yet God has brought them in. Now, point three, an unlikely message. You see, the book of Ephesians, uh, one of the dominant themes throughout the book, and there are a few dominant themes, but one of the dominant themes is that of grace. You see, what we're going to see time and time and time again throughout this book is that the only hope that we have is if God comes and meets us first. You see, if we base our life based on our rights and what we think we deserve and what we should get, if we play that out not in the humanly realm but in the heavenly realm, all that we deserve from God is judgment, separation from Him for all of our sin. Yet God comes to us not based on what we deserve but based on what we don't deserve and gives us grace. So grace is one of the themes that flows throughout the whole book because it's what we don't deserve. And so everything in this letter is an unlikely message because the people receiving it never deserve to receive the message, and nor do we. No one in this room deserves to read Ephesians. None of us deserve to have these words spoken over our life. Yet, God in His mercy chooses to. So what's in this book? What are we going to see throughout it? Well, I've already given us a few little hints, but I want to take a moment now to kind of explain what are some of the major themes throughout the book in more detail. So if you were kind of sum up how to view the book, you could basically put it into two halves, okay? Who we are in Christ, that's our position, that's chapters 1 and 3, and then how we are now to live, that's chapters 4 through 6. So it's our position and our practice, our doctrine of who we are and our duty. That's kind of how the way the book works. What God has done, chapters 1 to 3, what we are now to do, chapters 4 through 6. It's not that simple, but it's a pretty easy way to remember and it'll help you. So as you read through chapters 1 to 3, all the verbs and all the kind of things that are happening are indicative verbs where God is saying, this is what has done, and they're passive as well, to you. 
It's not something that you've done for yourself. It's been done to you. You have been saved. You have been set apart. You have been raised from death to life. You have been made into a new community. And then in the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, the structure of the book now becomes imperatives. This is how you are now to live. You should put off the old flesh and put on the new flesh. So when we get to the second half of the sermon series, we're going to have to figure out how to do it because every week is going to be like a punch in the guts because like, stop doing this, <laughs> stop doing this, and stop doing this. But Paul can do that because he's already reminded them so clearly of what God has done in chapters 1 through 3. So that'll be our constant, like, it'll be chapter 4, flip back to chapters 1 through 3, because we always want to be turning back to grace, and back to the cross, what God has done, because we are already saints, and now we live out our sainthood. So let, let's just briefly, very quickly go through um, and just have a look, chapter by chapter, some of the themes that are here. So in chapter 1, we have this new life in Christ. Uh, we see that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's all according to God's plan. Then the next little section, um, Paul prays for them to experience his power, the God's power, and to understand all that he's done. Then in chapter 2, Paul makes it very clear that it's all by grace in verses 1 through 10. He describes how it's nothing of our own. We were dead in our sin. Now we've been raised to life through Christ. That's why grace is one of the big themes of this book. Then in verse 11 of chapter 2, it kind of changes a new theme. So we've gone from kind of who we now are to how we now live in community. And verse 11 through to the end of chapter 3 is basically Paul's doctrine of the church. What's going on? He talked about unity in Christ, dividing the walls of hostility between Jew and Greek. And he talked about the cosmic purpose of the church. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. So he's talking about the history, the, the, um, verse 9, sorry. And this is the purpose of God, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So this is the plan, cosmic reconciliation in Christ. Verse 10, what's the purpose? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So to kind of summarize chapters 1 to 3, you've got God is reconciling everything in all creation into Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And the way he does that is he gathers people from every tribe and language and nation into churches. And in those churches, they live in unity and harmony through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then God takes these churches, the universal and the local, puts it on display to Satan and demons and all the heavenly realm and says, look what I can do. That's what God is doing through the church. That's the, the whole reason why we're here is so that God can show us off to the universe and say, look at my wisdom. Look what I can do. And then, in chapter 4, we come into this, how we are now to live. And verse 4, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So based on everything that you have done, uh, uh, God has done, now walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So it's not pick yourself up, be a great Christian, and God will accept you. It's because He's accepted you, because you're a saint, because He loves you. Now live this way. Live in a manner worthy of the calling. 
You know, you've got the team shirt, you've got the uniform on, represent the team well. Live up to that standard and calling. And so verses 1 to 16, he calls them to unity as a church. Uh, And then in chapter 4, 16 through really to the end of chapter 5, verse 20, he talks about live with purity. And he's going to, you know, talk about our speech. He's going to talk about our sexuality. He's going to talk about our, you know, how we view ourselves in all those little intricate parts. And it's going to get uncomfortable. And then he talks about how to have new relationships. Um, In the end of chapter 5, he talks about wives and husbands. In the beginning of chapter 6, he talks about children and parents. And then he talks about slaves and owners and workers. Um, And if that is a problem for you, we'll, we'll get there and eventually explain what Paul's talking about with slaves. And then he finishes the letter uh, by taking us back to this cosmic realm. Again, remember Ephesians, heaps of demonic activity, spiritual activity going on. And then he says, well, how do you live in Ephesus, in Christ? Well, finally, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So he ends the letter by saying, gear up. You don't need to go fighting, but stand. Stand in Ephesus for Christ. Stand for Him. Stand in unity. Stand in purity. Stand in these new relationships. Stand in your position because of what God has done. It's an incredible letter. It's going to bless us and shape us. And week by week, we're just going to see so many incredible things. But I want to be finished by taking us to the last verse, which I haven't got to in chapter 1. Um, in the introduction, verse number two. You see, we're in this point, which I've called an unlikely message, and Paul makes it even clearer. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are not just words that Paul just pops off and says, oh, grace to you and peace, and okay, now let's get into the real stuff for every spiritual blessing. That's not the point. Paul is looking at the Ephesians and wishing upon them what they should never have. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true for us this morning. Those words should never be spoken over us. What do we deserve because of our sin and our rebellion? We do not deserve grace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We deserve judgment. That's what we deserve. If you weigh up your life, even the last six hours (laughs) or the last week, it would not weigh up against God's holy standard. Yet through Christ, Paul can wish to the Ephesians and to us, grace to you, grace upon grace upon grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, undeserved mercy and peace. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I, brothers and sisters, have peace with God. Nothing could be better than that. We will meet Him face to face one day, and when we do, there will be peace between us. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. For any who are in Christ have the peace of God toward them. And he will never change that. So grace to you, church, and peace from God our Father and the Lord 
Jesus Christ. Why are we here as a church? What is God doing in the world? Well, he planned in eternity to bring all things together in Christ, to display those that reality in local churches, in community, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so would the praise of his grace be the theme of our hearts and our lives? Grace to you and peace. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that in your mercy you have given us this letter. You've preserved it. You've kept it here for us so that we may experience your kindness. Lord, I pray and ask that as we preach through this message, through this letter, you would form us as a church, that we would be unified, that we would be purified, that we would have every power to stand against the schemes of the evil one. And Lord, would you encourage us week after week after week that we have grace and peace from you. Lord, we thank you for that. We want to live to the praise of your glorious grace in Christ. May you be made known through us like you made yourself known in Ephesus. Would you take this frail little tiny church and do incredible things through it so that more and more people can be gathered into your church and display your glory to the world. We pray all these things for your glory, Lord. And in Jesus' name, amen.